good morning. So I want to thank Blair and the elders and, and all of you for the opportunity to come uh, open up God's Word for this morning. Um, my family has been blessed by this church over the past several months, and we're looking forward to calling this place home for a while. Uh, your hospitality uh, is—we uh, are uh, eternally grateful for how y'all have treated us and uh, thankful for that. And um, looking forward to—I've gotten to know many of you already— I uh, look forward to getting to know all of you in the next uh, several months, Lord willing, and uh, looking forward to uh, coming along and helping uh, reach this community and serve this community uh, all to the glory of God. So with all this, this is a, uh, a high calling, a high responsibility, which I'm not sufficient for, nobody is sufficient for, but uh, Christ and his word are. And so uh, please uh, join me in prayer. Our Lord, as we open up your word, I pray, Lord, that uh, you'll convict us of our sin. Lord, you will drive us to our Savior, that we will grow in godly virtue, grow in a love for you and love for neighbor. I pray for those who are here that don't know you, Lord, that they will hear the gospel and be saved. Pray for me as uh, I speak, Lord, help every word that comes out of my mouth be in line with what your word says. Nothing more, nothing less. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. There is no free lunch. I learned this phrase in my first economics class in college. It's a, a common phrase that means essentially that there are no true freebies. Everything has a cost. You're given no free things. There is always a string attached, a cost. Every gift is paid for. In other words, everything you receive, you will pay for in some way. If I'm offered a free drink at a restaurant, I will still have to pay for an entree. If I want a $50 gift card, I will have to fill out a survey. If I go out and eat and someone else pays for the meal, uh, the expectation is that I will pay for the next one. You got a college scholarship. Well, you had to get outstanding grades or be an outstanding athlete to earn it. This is the way the world operates. This is the way we operate. It is ingrained in all of us that all that we have is because we earned it. We paid for it. For everyone outside of Christ, this is the mentality of how to gain salvation. This is the teaching of every cult and false religion. You do good things. You follow these rules in order to obtain a reward, an eternal life. You earn your reward. But is that Christianity? All of us tend to think we can gain from God from our works, what we do. From justification to sanctification, we all have a tendency to think that we can receive God's favor and his love by what we do. But Paul has some chilling yet comforting words for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, the letter to the church in Ephesus is about God's eternal plan to save 
his people, the church, a remnant of Israel and a remnant from all the nations of the world, a people that once did not call God, uh, that he did not call his people are now his people, as we saw in Isaiah 55. The church, a eternal plan to save his people, the church, through Christ the Redeemer, from before creation all the way to consummation. He begins the letter with a, a prayer of blessing to God for all that God has done and the Father electing and predestinating and the Holy Spirit sealing his people, the church, by the work of Christ our Lord. And now Paul gets a little deeper, a little personal in explaining how he has accomplished this plan for us in real time, in our own personal lives. And it's quite different from what we would expect. Salvation was indeed earned, though not by us. It was freely given to us. And in this freeness, this freeness leads us to good works. It leads us to obedience. So please turn with me to the letter to the Ephesians and turn to chapter 2, be looking at verses 1 through 10. And in this passage, we will see that God in his grace has raised us to life that we may joyfully walk in good works. But first, he raised us from death. Look at verses 1 through 3. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the apostle moves from nothing but positives in the previous passage about how God elected us, predestined us, sealed us from before creation. But now he moves on to some gruesome negatives. He shares the the bad news with us. But it's like that, that salt you put on that watermelon slice. That saltiness prepares you for the sweetness of the good news. Our bad news reminds us what God has done for us, and it motivates us in our lives and our service. But what is this bad news? Well, look at verse 1. He says, essentially, we were buried with sin. He says we were dead in trespasses and sins. We weren't sick. We didn't have a fever that just needed some medicine. No, we were a dead and rotting corpse. And what were we buried under? The casket of sin and the dirt of trespasses. Sins and trespasses include all deviations from God's revealed will, whether that be wrongdoing out of ignorance or intentionally knowingly doing wrong. Everything you have done is tainted with the stain and stench of sin. But these are the, just the byproducts of the corpse that's already there. You may say, now hold on here. I was alive and well before I knew Jesus. Sure, physically you were. Psychologically you were alive. 
but spiritually you were brain dead and under cardiac arrest. We were dead, unresponsive, and totally unable to resurrect ourselves. We were indeed toast. But how, how was this death lived out? How was this paradox explained? Well, Paul lays it out for us in, uh, starting in verse 2. He says, we, we followed Satan, essentially. He says, we followed our master and commander, the prince of the power of the air, a.k.a. Satan. He rules the air, although on a leash. And this is likely uh, speaking of the spiritual realm. Although fallen angels cannot be seen, they are immaterial without physical bodies. They are very present. And Satan is commander-in-chief of this army. But you know who else is under his command? All those human beings outside of Christ. And do you know who else once pledged allegiance to Satan? You and me. We were zombies, dead men walking, following our chief. And how did we follow our commander-in-chief? Look at verse 3. He shows us, this is the irony of this. How does all humanity live, walk about, go about their ways? Spiritually dead. How so? How were we like them on top of that? Well, we like them lived in our passions of the flesh. We did what we wanted to do. We followed our own rules. We fought others who tried to trample over our own rules. We did all things for our glory and for our benefit. Everything we did, even our supposed good things, were tainted with selfish vainglory. We ate what we wanted when we wanted it. We drank what we wanted, how much we wanted. We committed sexual immorality without one ounce of shame. We hurt others, and we were glad to do it. But you say, oh, that, that doesn't describe me. I was, I was a moral person. He didn't drink, smoke, chew, or go with those girls who do. But I got news for you. Putting on lipstick on a rotting corpse won't do much good. All that you have done, all the things you avoided out of morality was still tainted with selfish ambition. Everything uh, not done in faith is sin. Everything not done to the glory of God is sin. They were done with evil intentions. And in in your heart of hearts, you know it. Like the rest of mankind, we all, that have been redeemed, were once children of wrath. We were under God's burning anger. So that's a great mystery, is that, that Paul, in the previous section of the letter, had just talked about how we were as his people, as God's people chosen and predestined to be with the Lord. But now he's saying we were once under his wrath. Well, how can this be? Well, picture this. 
All of humanity is falling into the pit that is surrounded with a wall of fire that one day will land into the lake of fire. All of us were falling. All of us had no way to get out of this pit. God had to do something. And praise God, he did. He didn't leave us, his people falling. For those of us in Christ, he grasped us. And when we think about this, when we ponder this, how does that make us respond? It should be an abundant gratitude, an abundant thankfulness, a joy-filled service to the one who dug us out of the grave, who caught us out of that fiery pit. This gratitude is the motivation for our new behavior, our service to him. We walk in joyful good works, as he talks about in the later part of this paragraph, knowing we were once spiritually dead. And this leads to joyful service, not servile drudgery. It leads to a loving, joyful service to our Savior. One theologian shared this image. He said, picture me, Picture me bringing a dozen roses home to my wife on our wedding anniversary. I hold them out to her at the door, and she smiles and says, Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why why did you? And suppose I lift my hand in in a self-effacing gesture and say, It is my duty. So what's wrong? Is, Is duty a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. But it can only take you so far. He says, if you want romance, duty won't reach. The right answer to my wife's question goes like this. I couldn't help myself. My happiness just got out of hand. In fact, to make my day, I'd really enjoy taking you out tonight. The amazing thing about this answer is that it does two things that many people think won't fit together. It expresses my happiness and makes her feel honored. A lot of people think, that if I do something because it makes me happy, I can't honor another person, but it can. Why? Because delighting in someone is a very high compliment. If you enjoy someone, two amazing, amazing things happen. You get the joy, and they get the glory. Listen, realizing where we came from makes our service and our works a joy, not a burden. We've been given great grace. We sang several songs about grace. But sometimes we forget about this. We feel entitled. We feel like people should serve us, not the other way around. Or when we serve, it's often out of guilt. We think we have to do it or we are bad Christians. Or we ask ourselves if we are even Christians. We start questioning our salvation. So we serve others out of guilt. For some of us, we just do it. It is our duty. Joy is irrelevant. No thought is really involved. You just do it. Well, you have to ask yourself, is God's grace, God's glory, the motivation for the deed? When you mow one of our elderly members' lawns, is it motivated by the freeness of God's grace? When you give to a brother or sister that is in desperate need, 
Do you look back at the spiritual poverty you were living in before you knew Jesus? When you see the world around you acting like the world? Imagine that. Sinners living in ways in which they only desire to live in. They live in sexual immorality, drunkenness, hatred, violence. Do you get angry in self-righteousness or do you pity them knowing that if it weren't for God's grace in you, you and I would probably be leading the party in all these debaucheries. Remember where you were. Remember God's grace to you and walk in the freeness of his grace. The remembrance of our death spurs us to remember and celebrate God's grace. But also we ought to remember we have been made alive. It's not just negative. We've been made alive in Christ. So next we see that he raised us to life. Look at verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul's contrast here is where our hope lies. But God. Okay, but what about this God? Well, he lays out for us what God has done for us, for for those who are his, the ones he rescued from death. Look at verse 4, that by grace he made us alive. God, who is rich in mercy, he looked at our plight and had pity on us. Also, he says, in his great love for us, he pitied us, and not only that, he loved us us. And notice Paul emphasizes this by repeating it, the great love of which he loved us. When you see something repeated, it's pretty important. He's trying to hammer something into us of God's great love. In verse 5, he says, despite, despite us being dead in our trespasses, he made us alive in Christ. This same power that raised Jesus back from the dead So Jesus was spiritually alive, but physically dead, and he was raised bodily. We were physically alive, but spiritually dead, and he raised our spirits from the dead and will one day raise our bodies as well. So listen, in Christ, we are alive. Without Christ, we are dead. Paul then sandwiches this text with a a thesis statement of sorts. What is this whole paragraph about? Can you summarize it? By grace you have been saved. 
by God's unending, covenantal, unmerited love, we have been saved. This is grace, God's unending, unmerited, unconditional, covenantal love for his people. It is by this alone we have been saved. Nothing in us, no work, no talent, no deeds, no nothing. All of grace. Maybe you are here today from an invitation from a friend, or you've been here many times, but you don't consider yourself Christian. Maybe you don't know where you stand with, with God. Well, like Paul said, all of humanity, you, just like you, all of humanity, are spiritually dead. You have sinned against a holy and perfect and righteous God. You, every day, every day, have broken his laws. You have served yourself and other things rather than the one who created you. And the scary thing is, judgment is coming on the whole world. He will judge all of humanity by his law. So how can you escape this judgment? Well, God, in his great love, sent his son Jesus to live the perfectly righteous life, serving God and neighbor with perfection. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He died on that cross, absorbing the wrath, uh, the judgment we deserve. He rose from the grave, and he lives forever and will come again, ensuring eternal life for his people, all of those who trust in him. And to receive the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and best of all, eternity with God, you must repent of your rebellion. Turn from your rebellion and forsake your rebellion and believe that Christ died and rose for you. Turn from sin and turn to Christ. And if you trust in Christ and what he has done, he will cleanse you from all your unrighteousness and he will receive you as his own. Do you want that? If so, you can talk with me or, or one of our elders or, or better yet, someone that's sitting next to you. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to, to know Jesus Christ. Because he, he alone, he alone, no other Savior, no other God, he alone can bring you from death to life. Amen. Those of us in Christ have been made alive by grace. What else? Look at verse 6. He says, essentially, he raised, and look at this, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Did you notice that? Does that sound familiar? What does Paul say of Jesus in in chapter 1, verse 20 of this same letter? He said of the, the Father's work through Jesus, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see that? 
Now, he says, of those who are once spiritually dead and now alive in Christ, that they, they, we, are seated with him at the right hand of the Father. The verb tense indicates that this was an action in time, and it is unchangeable. We are positionally with Christ. So what does that mean for us? How is this good news? We are looked at as his followers as Je- uh, followers of Jesus as his body. We are looked at as if we live Jesus' life. His account is put onto our account. We are his brothers and sisters and no longer his enemy. We may not see this with our eyes yet, but in actuality, we are declared to be with him positionally. In actuality, we are declared righteous by God through faith. Even though we know we're still living in the sinful flesh, we look forward to the one day that we will be with him in glory and sin will no longer have any uh, reality in our lives. Already, but not yet, perspective. We are declared to be with him positionally. We are adopted as sons and daughters with all the natural son's privileges. Therefore, we cannot merit anything from God. It's all been merited for us. I can't gain or lose from him. The position that we've been put in through Jesus is unchangeable. There's nothing we can or cannot do that changes our inheritance or our position. So do you understand this? Nothing that I do gains favor with God. Nothing I do makes me lose favor with God. Well, does this mean that our actions don't have consequences? By no means. We can still be disciplined by the Lord when we disobey. And we can be commended by the Lord when we do his will. We've been given commands, and we are to obey them, but not in order to receive grace. It is out of grace. So positionally, there's nothing we can or cannot do that affects our status or his love. We are his regardless by faith in Christ alone. So the things I do, the the good works contribute nothing to merit. I gain nothing positionally from him. When I sin, my, my position is secure. However, because I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, I hate sin. I hate sin because I want to glorify my God. Joseph, uh, when he is uh, tempted by Potiphar's wife, his response is, I I, I can't do this because I may uh, may lose favor with God. No, he says, how can I do this and sin against my God? So sin does not change our position. We have the Holy Spirit now, so we can't enjoy sin for a period, uh, for a long time. But why has God made salvation like this? That is free and unmerited, what we see in verse 7. He says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is so that his glory will be displayed for all of eternity for redeeming a people from death. For all eternity, the angels will praise the Lord's glory and power. 
but for redeemed humanity, we will sing the praises of his rich mercy and grace forever, a song which the angels will never sing. That's why he's done this. That's why he's created this great salvation. But how did we receive this grace? Well, look at verse 8. It is by grace we are saved through faith. Paul here repeats this thesis statement, but adds a, a crucial prepositional phrase, through faith. We are saved by grace alone, nothing else. The bridge that opens this grace, the conduit of grace, if you will, is faith. Not good works, not avoiding bad behaviors, but by believing Jesus is the Christ and that he died and was raised for us. That is the bridge connecting the grace to us individually. And all of this, Paul says, all of this was not from us, but outside of us. It is that gift of God. All of it, the grace, the faith, the salvation, all of it is from our Lord. And why did God do it this way? So that, look at verse 9. And as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one, no one may boast. No works were involved. Why? Because if I claim something I did to get salvation, I get some of that glory. But no, the glory goes to God alone. Now, he shares the benefits of his glory, but not his glory. Okay, so we're just to be stagnant beings now. Do we do anything? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, so I'm just going to relax alone. Are good works even a part of salvation? Yes, though not how you would think. As John Stott put it, he said, good works are indispensable to salvation. They are just not the foundation of salvation. In other words, our good works flow from salvation. They don't gain us salvation. How so? Well, look at verse 10. It says, uh, uh, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you know all this predestination language that Paul had been using in chapter 1. Well, here you go, another aspect of it. God redeemed us to be a new creation, to be his workmanship. We were predestined to be his workmanship, his workers, his art, to walk in good works. Every single good work of ours is not for merit, but it was prepared before creation by God. And notice, notice he ends this paragraph with that we should walk in them. He started the paragraph with how we once walked, past tense, as sinful dead men. Now we walk, present tense, as those alive. All, those, all of our good works flow from God's grace. They are motivated by God's grace and his glory. That's, that's why they're joyful. I don't gain anything from God by doing them. I do them out of the abundance of joy and thankfulness to God and my Savior and reflect his love for others. That's it. 
As Christians, we don't do good things in order to gain from God, which is a form of legalism. We don't do things just because we ought to do them, which is a dead traditionalism. No, we do them with joy, remembering God's grace to us through the gospel, which is life in the Spirit. And that is, that's freeing, isn't it? Good works are no longer a drudgery. I can just do things out of love for God and for people. I'm not getting paid. I've already been paid in full. I've already got my carrot. I don't need one dangling in front of me. So all I'm doing is living how I was redeemed and created to be. So no matter how much I've done, I've done no more than what was required. We only walk in good works because we've been made alive through the grace of God. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you take a, a capital tour, we've, take, we've taken uh, many of those. You go in the capital, of course, you get the huge uh, rotunda there. You look up inside, you go in the capital, you look up this rotunda, and you see this detailed and, and beautiful mural painted in 1865 by Constantino Bermidi, the apotheosis, as it is called, of Washington, and the eye of the U.S. Capitol building's rotunda depicts George Washington rising to the heavens in glory, flanked by female figures uh, representing liberty and victory and fame, and surrounded by six groups of figures. A rainbow arches at his feet, and 13 maidens symbolizing the original states, states flank the three central figures. In this beautiful and detailed painting, each object in the painting symbolizes something. There's not a detail that doesn't symbolize some value or institution of the United States. Likewise, we the church are the Lord's artwork, his mural, if you will. And our good works symbolize something about him. Our good works are about him, not us. We are just the artwork. He is the communicator. He communicates that this human was once dead and sinful, and he has made him, them alive and holy through his grace. So remember, our good works are just displays of his glory through the displaying of his making us alive. Each good work is a display of God's character. My family and I have, have been blessed with so much kindness from God's people in the midst of some very difficult days. But the way to look at it is, is like this. It's not the kindness of Bill and Jane. No, it's the kindness of our Lord through Bill and Jane. It is his character and glory displayed through human instruments. So see how it works there? It is his character displayed through his people, his merit, his works through us. So let us, let, let's, let the grace of God and the display of his glory be the motivator for our service. Whenever you visit or, or write a card to the sick, remember it's not a, I have to. 
No, it's just, I just want to display his grace and glory and his character. Whenever you share the gospel, it's not because I'm a terrible Christian if I don't. No, it's just that I'm so joyful from his grace, I just freely share it. Let grace and his glory, not guilt, be the motivator for all you do. One motivation, guilt, leads to misery. The other, his glory, leads to our joy. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 teaches us that God, by his grace, has raised us to life in Christ by faith so that we may joyfully walk in good works, displaying his glory. Remember remember God's grace and let that be the motivation. Guilt is an awful, awful motivator. Grace should be the motivator. Remember, God's grace is what has saved you, not your works. You and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. You doing something, doing service is not what saves you. It is not what gives you good favor from the Lord. We do and serve and and do good works, but it is an outflow, outflow of the grace of God and just living how we were created to live as his people. So this week, you will have abundant avenues of service, and you don't have to look far, for the needs are everywhere. And you can't do it all, but you can do some. Let grace be the motivator, not guilt, not even duty. Remember the gospel. Remember how we were saved, not by works, but by faith in Jesus. Remember how we are sanctified, not by works, but by faith in Jesus. So this weekend, when you're teaching a Bible study, just think you're just sharing the grace that God has given you. When you go and wash your neighbor's car, you're just displaying that same grace that God has given you. When you write a card of encouragement, don't look at it as something you just to check a box off for. What good does that do? No, it's just an extending of the grace of God, which I'm sharing from the Lord. When you're serving your homebound spouse or parent, you're serving in the way that God has served you. We're just reflecting him. And there's a joy there, isn't there? There's a joy in there. I'm not doing it in order to earn or just to do it. I am happy in God's grace and walking the artistry that his good works, that is the good works he has ordained, he has predestined us to walk in. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus. And listen, brothers and sisters, we were saved to display God's glory and grace. Why do I avoid certain things? Because I, I know the grace of the Lord in me and I care about his glory. So let us walk in the freeness of his grace and his artistry today. Our Lord, let us not grow dull in our understanding of your love and grace towards us. Let us not be desensitized from the sin of which we once walked, 
It desensitizes from the sins that we still struggle with, Lord. Help us to remain sensitive and grow in sensitivity towards it, Lord, but not in order to put these things to death in order to gain something from you, Lord, but to put them to death because we care about your glory. We care about displaying you to a dying world. Lord, you've called us to action. But Lord, help us to not trust in anything in ourselves. Put no confidence in the flesh, but put all our confidence in you, the God who raises the dead. And I pray all these things to your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.